BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back, everybody. Tom Rose, Gary Bauer with you. The Bauer and Rose Show, the Bauer and Rose podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're hosted by our good friends at justthenews.com and on Sirius XM The Patriot, Channel 125. Gary, it is uh, Monday evening, Monday uh, night here in uh, Tel Aviv. I'm just north of Tel Aviv, and I wanted to start the show with a with a content warning. Uh, what I'm going to do is read something terribly, terribly disturbing, more disturbing than I have ever read or heard before. The uh, Israeli National Center for Forensic Medicine had an event yesterday where they invited reporters and forensic pathologists from around the world as well as Israeli staffers to see the evidence of the Hamas crimes. And what they saw was so overwhelming that these journalists and forensic pathologists literally broke down in tears and were visibly shaken. I'm going to read a couple of findings. The findings are very, very disturbing. Um, and the reason I'm going to read them... It's the sort of thing where if, if you have a yeah. child listening to Byron Rose, they shouldn't be listening. That is absolutely correct. If you're a grown-up, you shouldn't be listening. The reason I'm going to do this, and I haven't cleared this with Gary, even though it violates every instinct in my body, and frankly, every element of Jewish values in terms of... of protecting the sanctity of the dead. I think it's, it's important that people hear this. The problem is once you hear it, you'll never be able to unhear it. There was um, a- um, that be- as we prepared to do the show, I was going to ask you, uh, this is a little secret, folks. Tom and I don't prepare for the show. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Bauer. We don't talk ahead of time. We're just sort of spontaneous, which explains a lot. Uh, but I was going to ask you, Tom, if you felt open to sharing some of that. I've I've uh, I've read the descriptions, and uh, so I'm I'm sort of buckled up here and and ready for whatever you're going to share. It's necessitated, as I think you were suggesting, by by the fact that the same media and uh, uh, members of academia and Western intellectuals that were willing, uh, with no proof at all, to accept the word of Hamas that Israel had bombed a, a hospital and killed 500 people, uh, those same people continue uh, to guffaw and uh, laugh at and uh, shake their heads. Uh, oh, come on. There's no proof that... Uh, the brave Hamas warriors that enter Israel did any of those things the Israelis are talking about. Yeah. But in fact, they did even worse it's, than up until now what the Israelis have been willing to share. It's And there apparently was a big debate in the health ministry. And the foreign ministry got involved and essentially it went to the prime minister's office and this was discussed at the highest levels. So here goes. It was a slide. Uh, Gary obviously knows this story, knows what I'm about to say, which is why he's leaving the room. Uh, it was a slideshow, and it was presented by these forensic pathologists at the, the forensic medicine center called Abu Kabir in Tel Aviv. It was a slideshow. The first slide was of a completely charred mass of flesh, which at first glance couldn't be seen as having belonged to a human being. 
it was only, and this was the next slide, only after a CT scan done by that institute that experts could see what it was. It was an image of two spinal cords, one belonging to a young adult, one belonging to a small child. They were bound together by wires. They were set on fire and burned alive. They had gunshot wounds to their hands, showing that they put their hands to their faces. They were burned alive in their home. There were many others that were slides that showed images of people burned alive in their homes. And we know they were burned alive in their homes because they found soot in the trachea, their throats, meaning they were still breathing when they were set on fire. Regarding the decapitation of babies, the Israel Center for Forensic Medicine showed that although the circumstances were quote-unquote difficult to ascertain whether the baby's heads were decapitated before or after death, they were certain they were beheaded, although they could not confirm the heads were, blo- were not blown off by an RPG. Now, this, I'm here, so I'm not, I I don't know. This was a press conference uh, attended by many members of the press who were moved some to tears. Uh, Many had to leave the room. Has there been much reporting on this, Gary? There's there's been uh, virtually nothing, Tom. Um, Certainly not talked about on any of the major TV networks that uh, I've been watching. Um, Another thing that I heard in some of the, you and I go to some of the same places, you know, that we know will actually cover news, even if it's uh, news that might offend somebody's ideology. Uh, They they talked about the number of women, young women, even children, uh, little girls, I mean, all the way from the age of 10 up until their 80s that had been raped so viciously, had been raped so viciously that uh, their pelvic bones were broken, uh, which suggests a level of animalistic, um, demonic behavior uh, impossible to imagine by anyone that still has the blessing of living in a um, a free society somewhere in Western civilization. These are, this is, it's, it's medieval. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I, I wasn't going to say anything. It's just... There's, I wonder, and it's a thought experiment, that the worse demonization of Jews, physically or figuratively, in the terms of the Jewish state, uh, always seems to come right after the very worst atrocities committed against them. I mean, do you think the monstrosity of their actions is somewhat related to the to the uh, uh, genocidal, like, bloodlust that they're now expressing, they're demonstrating thousands in Brooklyn on Saturday night, chanting, kill the Jews in Times Square. Um, th- this, is, this is an explosion of anti-Semitism unprecedented in the history of the United States. I've got a, a piece coming up in the New York Post um, if they take it, <laughs> that uh, explains this. In our 250-year history as Americans, our country has never experienced anything remotely like this demonstration of Jew hatred. Never before have people in our history gathered by the thousands to openly celebrate the mass murder of Jews. Not, not only is this the worst outbreak of Jew hatred in America's history, 
I think it's the worst form of organized hatred that we've ever seen. Not even the most racist, slavery-supporting Confederate Klansmen ever marched in Times Square chanting, kill all the blacks. Uh, To be clear, anti-Semitism, unlike old-fashioned, you know, good old-fashioned anti-Jewish bigotry, isn't just another form of, of, of bigotry. Today's anti-Semitism is genocidal. It's exterminationist. Today's anti-Semites, those we see marching in our streets in support of a genocidal group, they don't just hate Jews. They want us all dead. There's, this is a reality, Tom, that, um, that, that is so jarring to the worldview of very powerful and, uh, influential individuals in government and politics and the popular culture that um, they they look the other way. They, they cannot acknowledge this without it blowing up uh, every narrative they have about who good guys are and bad guys are. I, I saw somebody, um, uh, I, I believe it was attributed to a Jewish student at one of the universities who said that um, um, the, the the Jewish students that are having a really hard time on campus are the progressive Jewish students, of course, who cannot believe the degree to which their political allies on campus, the campus LGBTQ club, the campus feminist club. The campus fight hatred now club and uh, uh, the never Trumper club, <laughs> you, know, you name it, have immediately embraced Hamas and accepted the narrative of Hamas, and are joining in in the marches, shouting death to the Jews. That those progressive Jews on campus are in shock. What happened to intersexuality and all the rest of that? Right? I mean, it's. Uh, it must be a terrible way to wake up if indeed they're, they're waking up. And as we've talked about before, Tom, the, the overriding thing here is that the overwhelming number of uh, American Jewish students on campuses today in America are fearing for their lives. In 2023, in the United States of America, the home of the brave, the land of the free. Jewish students have been turned into Anne Frank, hiding with other friends on campus or going home until it blows over because they are afraid when they turn the lights out in their room that some of their fellow students might kill them while they sleep. Uh, one of those marches in Times Square over the weekend, there was a whole segment of the march that were doctors and nurses in their whites with stethoscopes and all the rest of it, marching as a unit, first responders, don't you know, with the Hamas flag dropped, draped around their necks. And I was thinking to myself, if I were a Jewish American in um, New York City, I would be darn careful who I went to see uh, to deal with a medical problem I had right now. I would want to be very sure about what flows in the veins of that doctor or nurse. There has never been anything close to this exterminationist, anti-Semitic, fervor than we're seeing today. When I was growing up, this just demonstrates that the 20th century skipped American Jewry. It's like American Jews didn't experience the 20th century. There was no Holocaust in America. There was no World War I fought, uh, and then there wasn't revolution afterwards at home. It's as though American Jews, though we slept through the 20th century, when I was growing up, 
my definition of anti-Semitism growing up in Indianapolis, Indiana, the example we all knew was that the Riviera Swim Club didn't take Jews. I mean, the, the smatterings of anti-Jewish bigotry, and you'll notice I'm not saying anti-Semitism, uh, that America experienced from its very first day until now, recently, would barely register by today's level, right? Because Jew hatred in America has been incubated, it's been promoted, it's been celebrated by growing sections of the far left in our universities primarily for 30 years. Uh, and we see this, this, this absolute explosion, and some of us are shocked. Some of us can't believe this can happen to Jews. When any Jew that doesn't live in the United States, particularly those that are here in Israel, are almost as shocked at the shock of American Jews in the face of, of radical Islamic taunts and threats and intimidation, that, you know, where have they been? That's what someone asked me today. Where have they been? And my answer was, I, I guess they took the 20th century off. Uh, you know, just, uh, Tom, the, uh, you're well aware of um, the letter that the first American president, George Washington, who himself is now seen as an evil dead white man, uh, not worthy of our consideration. But nonetheless, I retain a place of affection in my heart uh, for the man, as I hope all do, but clearly they don't. He wrote a letter to a, a Jewish congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, on the 18th of August, 1790. Um, and in that letter, he said, and he was basically... Uh, reassuring them or assuring them of their place in the American family. And he said, for happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires, requires of you, the Senate, the congregation, or of all of us, requires only that they who live under its protection should conduct themselves, demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. And then he goes on to say, may the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and joy and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, which everyone shall sit in, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there be not, shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in, your, in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way, everlastingly happy. I doubt, Tom, that that letter from George Washington could be read out loud at Harvard or Yale or Columbia or the University of Chicago or uh, Georgetown or yeah, the list goes on and on. At RenewAmerica.com, a great piece by uh, a columnist called uh, Jerry Newcomb quotes... Yes, a friend of mine. Well, you just... Can you not step on my lines... I, I, I always want to promote myself whenever I can, Tom. <laughs> quoted, Gary, quoted Gary Bowder, the founder of American oh. Values, oh, writing, quote, The National Students for Justice in Palestine celebrated the Hamas savagery by declaring the vicious attacks to be a historic win for Palestinian resistance. The Islamist supremacist group also claimed that 180 of its 230 chapters issued some kind of statement supporting the murderous attack. How does this radical organization, a flat-out Hamas front group, have 230 student chapters across the country? Can I add to that quote? How do 230 student chapters across the country for a genocidal terrorist group have tax-exempt 501c3 status? 
Yeah. Great question, Tom. I, I mean, look, there, there are groups like, what, what is uh, Charlie Kirk's group? Uh, Turning, Turning Point. Point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Turning Point is a, it, it is a uh, edgy conservative group, but there's not anything on its agenda particularly that is out of the mainstream of conservatism. They can't get recognized on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of university campuses in America because they're labeled a hate group. I mean, just think about that. I mean, it, it boggles the mind. I, um, I, I don't know where this is going to end, Tom. It, uh, oh, by, by the way, Christians United for Israel, you know, we have our own uh, university chapter. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we, you know, one of the main things we try to do is stand next with next to um, various Jewish clubs on campus to sort of signal to them that they're not alone. Uh, Tom, on almost all campuses, to have a student club, you have to f- come up with a faculty advisor. Um, there are a lot of campuses where we have students who want to form a Christians United for Israel chapter. The only problem is we can't find a professor who is willing to be the chapter's advisor. One school that um, wrote its regulations uh, with a lack of carefulness, and we checked it out with a magnifying glass, and we realized they, they didn't specify professor. They they said that there has to be an employee of the university that serves as the advisor to the club. And so the guy that we finally got as the advisor was one of the uh, school janitors. Hmm. I I mean, that's got to be repeated. Look, there's a climate of fear, and you alluded to it earlier, that's been created uh, in America, which I can understand, I acknowledge, I, I, I... you know, when this thing first happened and I called you and said I got to head back over there and you asked if I needed to have my head examined, I'm glad I'm here. I really am. I know it's crazy, but I, in a way, even though we are about to have an excrement sandwich show here, um, the war hasn't even started yet, I feel safer here. I really do. Uh, uh, that may be totally uh, contrary to what one would think is a rational um, assessment of the situation, but you know these these genocidists, these so-called activists for Palestinians, they're they're pushing two uh, theories, two principles at once that that Israel is just the embodiment of evil, and that Palestinians can do no wrong. Right? That every act they ever do, uh, has nothing to do with whatever outcome they're forced to confront. The fact that they've rejected six or seven, almost 100% compromise proposals based on everything that they claim they want for their quote unquote independent Palestinian state. And Palestinians fall further and further into poverty and misery. Uh, it, it, none of their actions led to that. The fact that they fire thousands of rockets from Gaza, send 2,000 terrorists into 25 Israeli towns, slaughtering, literally slaughtering, 1,300 civilians, to which Israel responds by, you know, pounding the daylights out of, uh, out of, out of terror sites in preparation for a ground invasion, that has nothing to do with anything that Palestinians ever did. Right? There is no connection between their actions or lack thereof and their condition today. None. I mean, they. Go ahead. Well, Tom, a couple of things. Uh, Do you know if if uh, the prime minister or his office and uh, anyone else in in the government uh, shared the uh, slides with? President Biden when he was over there because uh, I, I'm still trying to get my blood pressure back to um, a longevity levels. Uh, At least to get I'm you through reeling. the show. Yeah, because I'm reeling from uh, Joe Biden and his address to the United States oh, a few days ago. Um, 
repeating what he said he told the prime minister, which was um, control your rage. Don't make the mistake that America did after 9-11 when filled with rage, uh, we made policy decisions that ended up uh, not being wise. Well, I got news for the president. I'm still filled with rage over 9-11. But how dare he tell a country surrounded on all sides by bloodthirsty enemies who have just had their civilians massacred, that they need to control their rage. Who does he think he is? I couldn't watch the thing live. I, I read clips about it. I read, you know, quotes. And then I did watch it. And I wrote down several of the quotes <clears throat> that made me most furious. Quote, in moments like this, we have to remember who we are. Um, we know who we are, Mr. President, and we know who you are. You and your enablers. People that, that weaponize the judicial system and Im- try to imprison your political opponents. We know who you are. Do you know who you are? It, I, the, the, there were so many of those. And the business about I'm the first American president to travel to Israel during a war zone? I mean, what is this, the the Chauncey Gardner presidency just being there? Then he says, no higher priority for me than the safety of the uh, 32 American hostages. And what does he say immediately after that? He's giving the hostage takers $100 million. No higher priority, what he should have said if he were honest, I have no higher priority than covering my own rear end for protecting Iran, for promoting Iran, for funding Iran. And I have no higher priority than continuing to say that I didn't have, that Iran had no knowledge in this attack. Iran had no knowledge or role in this massacre. Isn't it interesting how the Secretary of State and the President are more emphatic of their denials of Iranian involvement than Iran itself, that has never denied involvement in this attack. Never. Yeah, I mean, Tom, it, 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 is, uh, it is so obvious here what, what the administration is committed to doing. Uh, they've got more concessions, more surrenders that they want to make to Iran, and they can't do it if people believe that Iran was a major factor in all of this. And so you get these sort of uh, ridiculous sentences like, uh, well, there's no doubt that historically Iran has uh, certainly been a, uh, a sponsor of Hamas and, uh, and an ally, but there is absolutely no evidence that there was a meeting that they, you know, planning this attack. Well, Hamas exists for this reason. So if you're, if you're the, the main sponsor of Hamas, and I, you know, and I would want to, I would want to compare uh, how much money uh, Iran gives Hamas compared to how much money we've been giving them, because maybe, maybe it's a competition over which is the major sponsor of Hamas. Mm. There's all kinds of U.S. taxpayer money that's been flowing into the coffers of Hamas. Just like it's been flowing under Biden into the coffers of Iran. Well, we're, we're directly funding to the tune of, I think, three quarters of a billion dollars, the Palestinian Authority, and they, to get, <clears throat> pardon me, together with Qatar and, Hamas and uh, Iran, fund Hamas. So, obviously, right, if money is fungible one place, it's fungible another. So, if we give the PA $750 million, that money is then freed up for Hamas. Tom, this is, uh, it's, what is it, it's, um, uh, October 22nd? 23rd. Uh, when we're talking with each other, um, uh, the attack was on October 7th. So it's, it's uh, over two weeks now. And, uh, you know, the, the theme in the American media is, man, Biden is standing with Israel. Uh, and the Israeli government is, is, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're being given everything we need, you know, uh, oh, it's so reassuring that the president came to, to see us. Uh, uh, but 
there are all kinds of anonymous administration sources being quoted uh, in the last 24 hours, basically with the same theme, the president is restraining Israel. He doesn't want them to go into Gaza while negotiations are underway for the rest of the hostages. He doesn't want them to go into Gaza while we're working so hard to avoid a regional war. He doesn't want them to go into Gaza, you know, fill in the blanks. What is your sense there that um, that this delay? Now, I can I can come up with rational reasons for the delay. Is this a trap? You know, this took a lot of planning. So was the planning only the event going into Israel or did the planning include what would happen when Israel inevitably would go into Gaza? Right. Right. Um, I, that's understandable. Um, there's the concern about trying as much as possible to neutralize the border with Lebanon. But how much of it is that and how much of it is this restraint? And this, before you answer, uh, Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States and um, uh, a, a de- deputy minister in the prime minister's office. Um, he writes in the Wall Street Journal today that if Israel does not destroy Hamas because of the attack on October 7th, uh, the failure to do so would threaten the reason that Israel exists as a country. That's exactly what you and I spoke about in our first broadcast podcast after the attack. If you'd asked me that question three or four hours ago, I might have had a different answer than now. There's, And this is not surprising news, but apparently sources in the defense ministry are now saying that the army wants the go-ahead, even at the cost of heavy losses. The army is now suggesting that the political echelon not only isn't prepared to give the order today, but may not be prepared to give the order ever. And their argument is that they are ready to achieve the government's objectives in the war against Hamas and that it must start its ground offensive sooner rather than later. Waiting longer threatens morale um, and can dampen down readiness. When you're a prize fighter, there's a point at which you have to go. And that after, what is it now, 16 days of airstrikes, uh, the, yep. ID, the IDF has told the government it is ready for a ground offensive. It thinks it can achieve the goals set out for it, even with, God forbid, very high casualties, and is prepared to uh, uh, face the attacks by Hezbollah from the north. The other... Um, <clears throat> debate now going on, which has been public, is that um, Benny Gantz, who is the new chief of staff who's in the unity government, former chief of staff, former defense minister, argued originally for something we also talked about, which which was a a preemptive strike at Hezbollah that Hamas could could wait until Hezbollah was dealt with. Uh, The same strategy that impacted American policymakers after Pearl Harbor. You know, we go to Germany first because Germany's the bigger threat. We'll worry about Japan later or give it less effort. The IDF uh, had plans for this preemptive strike and it was the political echelon, the prime minister, who said that uh, the president uh, wouldn't allow it, that he couldn't get guarantee American backing or support for Israel if she felt that there had to be a preemptive strike against Hezbollah. Now, seven Israelis have been killed on the northern border in the last... 10 days by Hezbollah rocket fire that in any time other than this would itself have been cause for war. There have been six... You att- to evacuate the dozens of communities, right? Including one that I believe has a population of 30,000. That's right. Curious Shimona. And the... Um, I lost my train of thought. I forgot what I was going to say. But, but on the northern border... Um, 
well, there have been these attacks, but there have also been, Gary, in the last four days, six attacks on U.S. forces or positions in the yes. region that either have been shot down by the THAAD weapon system or Patriot missile batteries. There's been no response. There's been no response, no American response. We've taken six hits. Well, we were able to uh, defend ourselves against them, but six hits, and there's been no response. What do you think that tells Iran? That they got to up the pressure, up the pressure, up the pressure. And Hezbollah is, of course, Iran's cat's paw. They will do whatever they're instructed to do. And the question at this point is, if they preempt... If they go first, and they're a much powerful force than Hamas, uh, Israel could be in real trouble. Well, this is just uh, cheery news here. Um, I, I don't know if my assistant, Dory, is uh, listening to every word, but uh, Dory, could you check and see if we still have any hemlock left there in the kitchen? Uh, um, yeah, t- Tom, I, I, I mean, look, I... I, I'm a I'm an agree, I'm a great admirer of uh, Bibi Netanyahu. I've I've had the honor of meeting him and talking with him many times over the years. Uh, I uh, I think his ambassador to the United States, uh, Ron Dermer, is an incredible person. I I'd love to see him as uh, Prime Minister of Israel someday. Uh, but I do not understand uh, what's happening now. And I, you know, if I feel shock at what happened on October 7th, I can only imagine how Israelis are feeling. Um, Michael Warren, who, who is left of center. He's, he's, he's center left. Absolutely. Yeah. He, in this piece in the Wall Street Journal, he said, um, uh, we believed the state would always be there in our hour of need, whether to rescue Israeli hostages in Entebbe, Uganda in 1976 or to airlift Ethiopian Jews in the 1980s. This was our social contract. And despite wars, terror attacks and domestic upheavals, it hung together until October 7th. That day, the state failed to anticipate the Hamas attack and failed to respond in a timely way to save hundreds of civilians. There's, it's not possible for anyone to deny a syllable of that statement. The very purpose of the foundation of the State of Israel was violated on October 7. Jews would have a refuge. Jews would have a safe place. Jews would defend themselves by themselves. And for six hours actually up to 18 hours in some places, that didn't happen, and we saw the result. If there's no IDF for 18 hours, there are 1,300 slaughtered civilians. But how about this line from the Biden speech, Gary? Israel and Palestine equally deserve to live lives of dignity, safety, and peace. So does that apply, Gary, to the Palestinians who voted for Hamas, who continue to support Hamas, who join Hamas, who celebrate genocide, who dance in the streets across the world celebrating the burning of babies in their cribs? Are those people, do they deserve to live in dignity? Dignity? Yeah, you know, Tom, this is, this is something that bedevils uh, American foreign policy for forever. This constant search for the moderates in uh, 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 Palestine, Zan. Uh, you, you know, the Palestinian Authority, uh, uh, their leader just uh, four or five weeks ago gave a speech, I believe to Fatah, in which he said uh, Adolf Hitler was not an anti-Semite. He did not kill uh, the Jews because they were Jews. He he killed them because of the role they were playing in society. And then he brings up uh, uh, usury, charging high interest rates on loans. I mean, this was a speech right out of like 1920 or something. You he, know? Uh, Mahmoud, uh, Mahmoud Abbas Abu, Abu Mazen has a Ph.D. in Holocaust denial from Moscow State University from the Soviet Union in 1970 or 71. His, his Ph.D. thesis was on the denial of the Holocaust. 
This is the man, this is the moderate. This is, you know, as Biden said, as I said to Israel, and as it hard as it, we cannot give up on peace. We cannot give up on a two-state solution. The two-state solution that with, you know, Obama's support, Israel and several Arab states, um, not Obama, Trump's support, you know, shuffled off to the side and signed five peace agreements, now possibly shattered to smithereens because of your encouragement and financing of, of the world's leading terrorist, terrorist state, Iran. But he said all the right words, you know. What a wonderful, wonderful speech. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, this, uh, I, I, was it George, I guess George W. Bush was the first. To openly advocate, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, to endorse, but uh, the Carter administration, I believe, was one of the, might have been the first president to say, nothing's going to solve this uh, unless we have a two-state solution. Of course, Jimmy Carter was the one who, um, after... Um, the Iranian revolution and, and the failed rescue attempt, which pretty well doomed the, uh, the Carter, uh, presidency. But, uh, it, it, after the, the Shah was overthrown and the Islamists came in, um, Carter wrote, I believe in his diary that, wow, you know, it was an upsetting thing and, you know, there's going to have to be some adjustments that he actually saw a bright side to the whole thing because uh, the new government was was religious like we are. <laughs> um, somehow Jimmy was comparing Southern Baptists to uh, uh, Shiite uh, extremists uh it, it must have been it must have been some awakening that he had to go through and i'm not sure in his long life he ever he ever finally like, got it you know I, I, <laughs> although I, 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 by I, the way i would say i would say to my christian friends because i you know i hear this tom from my community you know that uh there, there's a letter circulating from uh christians in palestine it's disgusting it, it it attacks Israel by name 13 times. It doesn't mention Hamas once. Uh, it could have been written by Hamas, and maybe it was written by Hamas. It probably was. You um, know, the Hamas in America story, Gary, is not one that's well known. Right? Their famous explanatory memorandum, 1991. The Muslim Brotherhood, which is the parent organization of Hamas, originally from Egypt establishes this this long-term plan in America to create a brotherhood-led Islamic movement that would present Islam as an alternative to Western civilization inside America. This was the the document at the center of the infamous Holy Land Foundation trial, which listed all these these, uh, uh, favorite media... uh, groups like CARE as uh, unindicted co-conspirators in a fundraising scheme to raise money for Hamas, a terror group. Now, in the 32 years since Hamas in America was established, almost all of the organizations that are affiliated with it have not only gotten tax-exempt status, they've both received federal and state funds and retained to this moment big influence at the highest levels of the U.S. government. We talked about this in, I think, our last two shows. Right now, we have Iranian agents of influence that were part of this Iranian influence network that Robert Malley, who's now been put on administrative leave or whatever, has placed in senior positions in the State Department and the Department of Defense, people that we know have ties to Iranian uh, security services. Does anybody know? Does anybody? Do you think you're not going to? I hate God forbid. Do we think we're not going to get it? Do we think it's not coming to us? Yeah, I. Well, Tom, I. I suspect we do. I suspect that. Um, wait, you know, there, there is. There's this impulse that's deep in the American psyche, and I think it's deep in uh, the Christian community. That, um, you know, we can love people out of this. Uh, we can, um, 
we we can reason with them. Well, no, you you really can't reason with them because to reason with somebody, words have to have a particular meaning. Uh, the reality has to have be somewhere there in the you know in the list of top priorities in trying to talk about something. Reality's got to play a big role in that. Um, yeah, yeah, you. you Hitler couldn't get it hugged out of him. <laughs> it was going to take blood and iron. Um, so, but, but, but we, at least I'm in Israel, obviously, at least here, this is where Arabs live and Palestinians live, but we imported millions of them. I mean, we imported them. We begged them to come. We, after 9-11, the floodgates to uh, the Muslim world without any ability to vet extremists or not uh, came into America literally by the millions. I think there have been two or three million Muslim immigrants to America since 9-11, most of whom obviously are patriotic and law-abiding. But even if the number is 10% who aren't, 10% of two million, that's 200,000 people, and a lot of those have been marching in our cities chanting, F the Jews, kill the Jews, uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which is just a fancy way of calling for genocide because uh, free Palestine, according to them, is a Palestine that is uh, Jew-free. I, I still think that the first Republican politician that goes to town on this, demanding an you know an immediate revocation of tax-exempt status, um, and yanking the tax-exempt status on these huge Ivy League endowments. I mean, Harvard's got a $42 billion endowment. We'll get an advantage over the other dwarfs. I mean, I don't think anyone's challenging Trump, but in the battle for second place, I guess DeSantis has said a thing or two, but... Well, you know, Trump said, and of course the media, Tom, it is amazing how we're, we are already living in a authoritarian society with managed news and indoctrination and criminalization of political opponents. Uh, Trump gave um, a speech the other day where he, he said he would put the uh, ban back in from uh, selective countries. Um, there would be um, very uh, a big upgrade in the process we go through before we allow somebody through legal immigration to come into the United States, not only to check about what organizations they might belong to, what they might have written, what's on their cell phone or whatever, but this was the thing that was really important. He said there will be a severe ideological test. And the ideological test was, do you believe in the ideals of America, in religious pluralism, the freedom of speech, uh, the consent of the governed. Do you believe the Constitution is superior to your uh, holy book? Uh, so this is the kind of thing which, you know, I've been advocating for years. I think you have too. And which even some um, decent Muslim Immigrants to America have expressed public surprise that nobody asked them any of those questions when they applied for citizenship. I mean, I guess it's the same explanation as why the State Department has never attempted to put any restrictions on Ukrainian retaliation against you know, the Russian invasion, uh, you know, the Ukrainians, and I'm for it. You and I are not on the same page on that. The Ukrainians have had operations against the Russian Black Sea Fleet, have fired missiles into Russia. I don't remember a single State Department uh, cable or a minute urging caution or restraint. The very first thing Anthony Blinken did upon hearing about the massacre was call for a ceasefire to prevent Israeli retaliation. Now, if he had said that about Ukraine... The reaction would have been, he would have been fired immediately. Uh, would an American diplomat ever lecture the Ukrainian president about ending this quote unquote cycle of violence? I mean, it, 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 it's inconceivable. Yeah, you're right, Tom. Well, now, again, I just want the record to show for our, our 
uh, listeners as we get ready to sign off here that Tom brought up Ukraine first. So <laughs> I just want to make this one point, Tom, that over the weekend, uh, Mitch McConnell, God bless him, uh, did his first nationwide TV appearance since his much publicized uh, medical challenges uh, late this past summer and uh, d- did an interview where he made it absolutely clear, if he has anything to say about it in the Senate, uh, that aid for Ukraine and aid for Israel and the border protection expenditures will all be in the same bill. And then Congressman McCall uh, from uh, Florida, who's considered one of the good, strong conservatives, also a very a big guy on uh, national defense, said that that's exactly what he wants to happen in the House of Representatives. And, Tom, I am telling you, if that's what they end up doing, you're you're not only you and I are not only depressed now, they are going to guarantee that we lose the House, the Senate and the White House one year from now. When you want, I guess, 13 months from now. And by the way, they, go ahead. Well, want, and look, if you, for no other reason, I want every member of Congress to have to vote yes or no on an aid package for Israel. To our Israeli friends, you have nothing to worry about. It will pass overwhelmingly, but I want the people to vote that will vote no. I want them to be clearly seen. They weren't voting no because they had some questions about Ukraine or they had some questions about the board. I want a yes or no vote on Israel. I want a yes or no vote on Ukraine. And I want a yes or no vote on what ought to be no more than five, six page bill for money for added security at the border. If it's more than that, if it's a longer bill, it has nothing to do with security at the border. And what are the chances? It's a Republican-controlled House, even though we don't have a leader. Why can't they do that? They have the majority. And by the way, it would 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 get 400 votes. The aid to Ukraine? No, to uh, Israel. Oh, yeah. No, there's no question about it. Because they realize they're trying, I think, both... Um, McConnell and I believe the House leadership are trying to uh, protect probably half of the membership, that Republican membership, who want to vote for aid to Ukraine, but are afraid to do it if it's a vote only on that. So they'll be able to vote for this package and say, well, I was voting for aid for Israel. And the Ukraine stuff was just in there. I wasn't going to betray Israel over that. And then on the flip side, you'll have the anti-Semites. Right. Right. Jeez. Anything positive at all? I mean, I'd bring up the Redskins, but I guess that's not going to go over too well either. Well, I think from the standpoint of our listeners, the only thing positive would be if you say goodbye. (laughs) I say goodbye, too. (laughs) Have a great couple of days. God bless Gary Bauer. God bless all of you. We'll talk to you in a couple of days.